Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Oh, you're recording me! Mm-hmm. I've got to come with a better starting joke than that, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> oh... So, how are we doing, gents? We are on episode 106. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm not sure what goes with 106. 105 was, of course, is the light gun, but 106... I'm trying to think. What did PT-106 get up to in World War II? Oh, Why do you ask this question now? We're going to spend... We're, we're going to, I think we might just start this again somehow. <laughs> no, we're fine. <laughs> Okay, well, this week we have a lot of things to d- discuss, as is our normal want in these times. It seems that we are never short of stuff to discuss because thanks to, well, thanks to the world, thanks to politicians, thanks to navies, we always have stuff to discuss. We were considering doing Bonhomme Richard this week, but, and the fate of the fact that the sailor who was supposed to be convicted of the crime because he supposedly admitted it, didn't actually admit it. And so hasn't been convicted, and the evidence didn't stack up. We're waiting for when we have Sal free. And so we are either going to have to go to America and abduct him, or wait till he's got a <laughs> break in his scheduling. Either way, Makes Sal, up. no, we are tracking you. Yeah, look, again, I repeat, we need everyone to become flat earthers so we can get rid of these stupid time zones. It's just <laughs> so annoying. Yeah. <clears throat> We were in the three three different thirds of the planet. Here we are. It's, it makes it very hard to coordinate sometimes. It does make it fun. It does make it fun. Especially with daylight savings thrown into the mix. But we still have quite a few interesting things to do or talk about. We have recovery of ships after they sink and the stuff you want to recover from them. We have Asa. China doing its... Well, you see, the thing is... You could take it one of two ways. They're talking about a carrier coming to the ocean. You could take it as very threatening. Or you could be like me, when I'm arguing, is they're going, they want to look strong and posturing it, but they also don't want it to cause any problems. So they're going to be telling everyone they're coming for about the next five years. Don't worry, gents, I won't use the joke, which I I, I did, mm-hmm. which I cracked earlier. Uh, one of my grandfather's old jokes. Before they actually appear, because, you know, they don't want people to actually react when they get in there. They just want to be impressed by how strong they are. And, well, then we have a few other things. We are not going to be talking about HMAS Supply and her name this week, but um, that might appear in a Christmas special. We're going to see if we can persuade Jamie to do a Christmas special on funny names in the in the, in the various uh, navies. And talk about where they came from. And of course, not at all mentioned Torpenhow Hill. Mm-hmm. Um and I think I think we have other things as well to discuss. So Coventry, maybe really, well, Coventry was the ship, which mm-hmm. is recovering the information from. Uh but we have oh, other true. stuff to discuss. We have the thing is well, oh we have, things X, is... we have XLUVs. We'll we'll definitely get to them. And there are about another two dozen ideas that have come up in the bilge pump stream for us to discuss. That we might get to or we might not get to, including so. uh, using SSBNs as SSGNs. So we have lots of things. So where should we start, gents? 
Because um, uh, it is the usual crew. It's myself, mm. Jamie, and Drac. I, I mean, I, I'm personally tempted to start off with the uh, SSBNs bit. Okay. Yeah, that, um, start off with that. Well, you see, the idea in theory of converting an old SSBN into an SSGN is not necessarily an awful one. They're stealthy platforms with a high capacity so they can carry lots of missiles. Um, so they, they make ideally the, the perfect strike platform. Now the Russians obviously went their own way with doing um, the Oscars purpose designed ones. But when you look at the Oscars, you can, you can see shades of influence from their contemporary ballistic missile sub programs. And of course the Americans have converted some of the older Ohio's into such things. However, the big flaw in this plan is it requires you to have older SSBNs that you don't need anymore uh, in the SSBN role, which rather puts a limit on the number of navies that can do this, even from the very small number of navies that have F SSBNs in the first place. And more particularly for the Royal Navy, although the maybe one or two of the vanguards might have some life left in them by the time the dreadnoughts start coming into service, which is, you know, this is the thing. There might be the vanguards might have some life left in them now, but they've got to serve another probably decade or so until the dreadnoughts start coming in. The other big problem, if we're talking about the Royal Navy doing it, we actually have to have enough missiles to fill them. I'm pretty sure if you converted the four vanguards to SSGNs, you could probably fit Britain's entire Storm Shadow and Tomahawk um, it's arsenal into two of them with one to spare. Hmm? It's 144 tactical missiles you could fit in, the, in their current silos. Yeah, I might have done the maths a, a couple of years ago. About what? That's, that's, about, uh, that's about one and a half vanguards, therefore, you could fill with the entirety of our cruise missile stock. Yeah. Which would then mean we don't have any cruise missiles to stick in the Astutes or yep. anything or or any of the Mark 41s. <laughs> Basically, if you sink one one SSGN Vanguard, we don't have any cruise missiles anymore. <laughs> yep. So it's it's expensive, but... Well, it's not so much expensive. It's more the government's cheaped out on the cruise missile stocks. Yes, the government's I mean, cheaped out on many things. We, it's also, having, it's yeah. also having all your eggs in one basket. Yeah, I mean... I mean as much I can as understand that. Like, I, I, I let's understand that. It is and it isn't, because let me explain why it isn't. If you had a couple of SSGNs, because let's be honest, that's what you would be probably get. If Britain, if Britain got anything at any point, it would be a couple of SSGNs. You would then have a couple of SSGNs to add on to the strike potential of your couple of carriers. Your probability is you're only get, if you get a maximum carrier you're going to have available for a war zone is going to be one carrier. So your SSGN turns up and that gives you 144 cruise missiles on day one strike from closer and a place the enemy is not expecting. And that is your thing. That is your D1 strike asset. And that is what it gives you. It gives you a maximal strike capability on the first day of any operation. And then the thing that he has to go back and rearm. So it's very useful if you can just uh, if you can afford it. And the thing is, if you uh, justifying it is pretty easy when you've got a scenario where you've gone right. Then we're going to replace HMS Ocean, HMS Argus, HMS Illustrious, HMS Ark Royal, 
HMS Invincible with HMS Queen Elizabeth and HMS Prince of Wales. In that scenario, you have gone down from five flight decks to two. You have gone down from... Okay, yes, these, each flight deck can carry far more strike potential than the previous ones could. Great. But you've still only got two assets, and so the odds of you having both available or having enough aircraft to fill both is very, very low. So now you're talking about a scenario where you need to maximize that. Now, I know we're going to put some Tomahawks on a Type 26 if we get the fun, if we get the money. We're not going to be able to put them on Type 45s, but we hopefully are going to Type 83s. But that's going to be a long way away. That, you know, we're talking about Type 26 procurement. We're talking about Type 31, 32 procurement. Type 83 procurement is probably not going to begin until at least the 2035s, 2040s. If we're lucky. So the thing is... SSGNs make sense in that scenario. Now, there are two options for how you get them. You use an old boat, or alternatively, you build a fifth dreadnought and you use an insert system. And so you roll one vessel, one of the dreadnoughts at any point is rolled as the SSBN, that's the primary roll, but you also have another one rolled as an SSGN. And you just use an insert going into the ballistic missile pods that you can remove. So if you have a trouble and you need to convert the SSGN into a ballistic missile submarine to maintain it, you do. But that allows you to have that capability and maintain an SSGN capability because you can, with five boats, maintain the one guaranteed at sea on patrol for deterrent and have usually the capability of another one in the SSGN role. Yeah, but I mean, that, I mean, let's get back to why this idea was floated in the first place. Um, the United States can't produce Australia an SSN. No. Britain can't produce us the SSN we want. Yo, Necessarily we can. quickly we, enough. We, 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 no, because that's the way, this is the trouble for Australia, is that no one had, they, they want to build it honestly at home. And that's fine, but then they need to upgrade their own production facilities. And we're also maximising our production facilities, because the trouble is the British government were all very, very happy for it, but now Ben Wallace has gone... The actual programme which seems to be going through, there was talk of, about rebalancing the fleet towards, yeah. you know, d uh, between submarines and surface ships and all that stuff going on. But actually what it seems to be is they've got more money for defence, and they're going, right, then we need more submarines. If we're going to put the new money anywhere, it's going to go into more submarines at the moment because we've already got the surface program so, going. So therefore, the sub-program producing, because you will be building the reactors. And yes, so, we will be. And if, you want, if you're wanting those reactors, then they're not going to be coming to Australia. So uh, the no, idea, the proposal build, was, the the proposal was the that we could possibly buy a few old, worn-out, clapped-out SSG um, BNs and turn them into... Strike submarines. Not that I think that a strike submarine, as you just described with Tomahawks, mm -hmm. is really going to help Australia much because, let's face it, we're not exactly going to be invading China. Our main concern is defending our sea lanes in the Southern Ocean, the, east, the Southern mm -hmm. Pacific Ocean, and the Indian Ocean with a vessel that can travel great distances at great speeds and follow fast-moving um, SS opposition SSNs. Mm -hmm. And, and hunt them down and chase them down. So I, while, I, while I think the original idea is flawed of converting these things into into um, missile carriers for Australia, um, it's still an interesting concept. 
but um, uh, it's, it's, I it's clearly like one it, more would... of use. Clearly, one more of use to Britain and the United States and France than it is to Australia. Yeah, the I other would not I'm... like to play Correct. chess against an SSBN. Yeah. That can yeah, the SSBN the problem that I I think. Well, there's two problems. One, normally the SSBNs are optimized for slower travel speeds because mm. they're supposed to be doing patrol That's right. and with nuclear weapons, which is a bit of a hindrance if well, I mean it's a bit of a hindrance if you're the Australians you want to get somewhere fast mm. because it may not be able to get there as fast as an SSN. And even if it can, it's not necessarily optimized for that. Um set well, sort of then kind of attached to that is the fact that um if you're not going to get any vanguards anytime soon because you know we need to keep hold of those till the dreadnoughts come online which basically means you've got to persuade the americans to sell some old ohios and good luck getting congress to sell anything nuclear to anyone <laughs> ever um you know i mean considering there's a bunch of people in congress who probably think that nuclear power comes from warp stone for like delivered by the Skaven from Warhammer Fantasy, the chance of getting a rational decision out of them anytime soon are pretty slim. But even if they did, that runs into a, another problem, which is that if you have an ex-Ohio class SSBN converted to SSGN in Royal Australian service, and the let's say there's some kind of conflict with China, or maybe Russia, or both, and you've got an Australian SSGN sneaking around, and a you know, hostile submarine picks up on its tail and is about to launch its torpedoes at it. How do you tell it's an Australian SSGN and not an American SSBN? They're exactly the same ship, they've got exactly the same sound profile, and the Australians ain't going to add a little um, a little uh, speaker at the back going, hello, we are Actually, Australian. Sorry, we probably would. Especially if it was, uh, if it involved completely pulling the hull apart, redesigning it, extending it, and putting sliding doors and uh, glass patios. So, um, yeah, yeah. The, the, oh. yeah it, it would happen. I'm, I'm just thinking the strategic implications of, you know, I mean, on the one hand, it might act as security because a Chinese sub is going to think very, very long and hard about possibly accidentally popping one of America's strategic deterrent more so than they would if the sound profile was an SSN. The flip side to that is, of course, they might get something wrong and they might actually pop a American ballistic missile sub instead of an Australian guided missile sub, at which point things get a lot more interesting than anyone ever thought was hoping that they would at that point in whatever theoretical conflict might be going on. I still can't see any point in having an SSGN anyway. Well, th this is what the the other thing I was the other main thing that I was thinking of is that from a Western perspective, at the moment at least, an SSGN is a land strike tool, mainly because we don't have any sub-launched anti-shipping cruise missiles. I mean, in theory, the latest block of Tomahawks can kind of be made to do it, but they don't have active homers. They rely it relies more on knowing the GPS location of the target ship and then feeding that gps to location to the missile um in real time which would a mostly means the americans can use that function and they probably won't let anyone else do but you know we don't have an equivalent to the granite etc etc that's on the oscars um so we don't have sub-launched vertical 
uh, well, I mean, in theory, you could sub-launch harpoons. But let's face it, a harpoon at this point is kind of an entry-level anti-shipping missile. And if you've got that many missiles stacked on that expensive an asset, you don't want to be close enough close. To, be, to be volleying harpoons. You want something longer range. And we just don't have that. The I mean, there is one potential Canada in the Western world that I'm aware of that you could stick on that thing, which would be Scalp N, a.k.a. Navalized Storm Shadow. Um the only problem there is you'd have to buy it from the French. And I don't think they're going to be in the mood to sell to the Australian Navy <laughs> no, just around about not. this point. Probably not, no. Um, Seriously, yeah, I mean, if the what, Royal Navy what, got what its act together do? and bought some, then you, you then potentially could, because it's MBDA, so it you know, could be bought from the Royal Navy. But at the moment, we don't have BLS Storm Shadow. I don't know why we why we don't we already use the thing in the RAF we might as well get it but we don't at the moment so um drac i can explain this look it's one reason this is like why we didn't have mark 41 fitted to the type 45s because they worried if they could also launch tomahawks then you wouldn't be able to justify the submarines and if you the royal navy also has storm shadow then there are probably gentlemen who are uh, gentlemen and ladies who worry that you might not be able to adjust the F thirty five or you know the Eurofighter because you know if the Royal Navy also has Storm Shadow, then a Treasury Minister will only see these both have Storm Shadow. This carries more. We keep this. Get rid of that. As opposed to just going, we have Storm Shadow across our entire fleet. We have Storm Shadow from from well, we don't have tornadoes Look, anymore, but we have Storm Shadow from typhoons. We have Storm Shadow from ships. We have Storm Shadow from from submarines, you know, we could we that, could have that, a, that, yeah that, an efficient I, I, coherent I, arsenal, which I is probably agree. exactly why we don't have them. <laughs> I I agree that would be efficient and very sensible, <laughs> and I would support that. And vast majority of the people in the Ministry of Defence and the Navy and the RAF who I've talked to would support that. But they also sit there and go, "Have you tried to have these discussions with what the Treasury euphemistically call efficiency and economy engineers?" <laughs> aka we we need more money to pay for our our post politician post politics sinecure positions so um you can't have the nice stuff uh, well, I mean, th there is a way to solve all of these problems and a revolution HMS... where me and drac end yeah. up in charge oh yeah hms spay hms spay is apparently giving it a trial run okay. look it's only it's only simulated piracy when you give the stuff back <laughs> well Privateers. They certainly hey. bailed out they certainly bailed out Britain from a few disasters in the past. Yes, yes. So, and I feel they could do, do it again. Now, now I understand that that whole, you know, crisis around the North Africa has kind of, you know, evaporated into the uh, into the ether. It's been it's been beaten back after thirty or so years of um, effort. So there's definitely a space there in definitely a market available for a new player in the um, piracy slash property business. So, you know, why, why can't we expect these um, uh, offshore patrol vehicles to start, you know, snaffling the odd tanker here and there, grab, grabbing because hold of the odd Roro ship or the, odd, the container ship. And Britain I, I, has I, found look, a you, far you, better you, racket than privateering. <sighs> Called it doesn't seem to be working very well at the moment. Yeah, but it doesn't seem to be working very well at the moment. Okay, we'll start sinking stuff then. <laughs> Actually, no, you've got to pay out, don't you? Um, 
Yeah, well, you've certainly got to find something because at the rate that you're, the pound is falling, mm. Australia will be able to afford to buy those um, <laughs> um, attack class. <laughs> we'll have a fire sale. <laughs> Two for the price of one. Hell, you might, have had a, you might even be able to throw in the um, Prince of Wales. But, um, well, yeah, if you want, if you, if, yeah, prop shaft not included. <sighs> fire sale. Um, yeah, but no, I mean, the funny thing is, actually, someone sent me a link recently. I'm not sure whether it was deliberate or intentional I'm pro- uh, or un- unintentional. I'm probably going to go with unintentional because um, it seems like the kind of thing a grandstanding senator or congressman might do. But recently there was, in, in one of the latest rounds of sanctions um, against Russia, the the actual wording of the bill that was passed specified issuing letters of mark to allow the seizure of russian assets and i'm sitting there going i'm fairly sure privateering was abolished in the middle of the 19th century and letters of mark were specifically banned so either the us is unilaterally bringing them back or someone's screwed up but for the minute since no one seems to have have caught and changed the wording of the bill technically the US is now issuing letters of mark again, which means we can have private privateering. Legal privateering. Legally. As long as we go after Russian assets at the moment. But you know, if they're issuing letters of mark generally, we could just apply for one that covers other shipping. <laughs> Anything. Yeah. yeah. Well, hey, look, Jimmy. Um if anyone wants to find me in Drac in a mm-hmm. couple of weeks' time, we'll be um Probably cruising some parts of the world's oceans. You, you might be able to exchange and, uh, taking some Russian ships. You might be able to exchange those um, leftover uh, US and Canadian dollars from your recent mm-hmm. visit, visit um, to purchase a um, an un- unwanted t- um, destroyer or frigate. It's true. not that bad <laughs> yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> I, 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 I'm not going to get into the British government and their m- many forms of idiocy because, oh, frankly, we're, I, we're, I, I we're, deal with them. But I, I am not. Uh, we're it's we're trying of, to stir you up. We're trying to stir you up, I, and it's working. I'm very glad to say I didn't vote for them. My current, my current working theory at the moment is there must be some kind of unwritten rule from probably Sir. Maybe they put it in place. Oh, you know what it is. It was Thatcher's last act. There must oh, have been sure. some kind of dark ritual that occurred in 10 Downing Street in the early 1990s <laughs> when Thatcher was being forced out. That now means whenever a, a politician assumes the office of prime minister, their IQ is adjusted to one half of the previous prime minister's IQ. <laughs> that explains our, the last 20 plus years of of political stupidity um, so i have wouldn't they changed... say so what i would like to know is is have they removed the lead pipes from number 10 downing street yeah god no anyway, no but even I, the white I, I house would... for that for that matter oh, God, no. what, <laughs> well, I, what, what i would say about currently is the, sort of the current things going on and it's kind of interesting. One of the things that has changed is they they are still funding defence and they actually increase the budget for defence. And then you look at the polling figures and the only defence, only minister in a uh, minister of state who is really, really popular. In fact, so popular, he's more popular than the entire opposition cabinet combined, let alone the current actual ruling cabinet, is the defence secretary. So 
I am waiting for the Labour leader who keeps chasing anything which is going to give him a guaranteed win to announce that no matter what happens in any election, he will leave Ben Wallace in post. <laughs> because Ben Wallace is amazing and the British public love Ben Wallace, who basically doesn't say anything. It just gets on with the job of being defence minister. Well, I think that, okay. And he's quite interesting, everyone. For those of us who are not British, which, which ships are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Actually, quite well. Well, I, I think uh, to be to be honest, I think the main the main reason Ben Wallace is doing a half decent job as defence secretary is probably because he's the only. He seems to be the only high ranking member of of the current government who, or and the previous one for that matter, who actually wants to be there. Mm. Everyone else is in government as a way of getting rich, but personally, a little bit further down the line. Um, or just flogging whatever random or nonsense because they want to get the, their, their ideology that the late like the last book they bought in Waterstones told them was a good idea. Ben Wallace is I I think is I think he, it was probably the works, not Waterstones. I'm not I'm not possibly. that in a, I d I don't think they have got to Waterstones. But no, that I think ben, ben Wallace is just sitting there just going, I get to play with ships and tanks. <laughs> like he's literally just, I think he's literally just doing that. he just wants to play with ships and tanks and planes for as long as humanly possible so he's actually simply by dint of that he, he's actually doing a, a decent job as opposed mm-hmm. to um everyone else where it's just like yes of course you know we will have a meeting with all these other financial people who suddenly have lots of options on the pound going so, very very badly and then magically we make think- decisions that make the pound go very very badly and then they all better. adjust their decisions for the pound recovering. And magically, we do U-turns that make the pound recover. And magically, in four or five years' time, uh, Kwasi Kwarteng, um, executive director for Random Financial Institution in London, on the <laughs> seven-figure salary. So Liz do you Trump think we can... Um, been offered the position, but she couldn't find her way out to London Underground. Do you think you can mm-hmm. convince him mm-hmm. that raising the country would be a good way to save on... The next generation of um, destroyers, probably. I mean, if we if we told if we told if we told him that if we told the current government that they, we could raise and recondition Coventry, and then we'd have an extra air defence asset that would save them, ha- and they would put off having to re- put build build the Type eighty threes for a year or two. I think they'd probably be dumb enough to fall for it. What's what's the inflation? They must have fall so for 19- it. They'd be sending the ships before we even actually finish talking to them. What's the inflation rate since eighty three to now? Um, That's a good question. I mean, well, I mean, you ask us that today. By next week, <laughs> <laughs> um, by next week, well, we by the time we this comes out on a... Friday, Saturday morning, yeah, th- this could be we very be different. Going to with a barrel load, barrel load of cash just to buy a a um, loaf of bread, yeah, loaf of bread, yeah. Um, but uh, so that you know, they're talking about rate, they're talking about. The secrets that could potentially be covered off of a 1970 iron brew is now two pounds 65 a bottle. Uh, well, the yeah. cryptographic stuff on Coventry. I mean, on the one hand, it does sound slightly absurd that 40 year old cryptographic equipment might be in some way useful to people these days. On the other hand, one of the major problems that we had in the Falklands was you know. The uh, air defense radar not working when the satellite communication system was was, not, on. was online, and that apparently is still currently a, a, pro- a technical problem for some navies. So, um, who knows? Maybe maybe they do need that. 
Yeah. And, also, look, I mean, and, and how, how much money has actually been invested in replacing the cryptographic equipment since the 1980s? 80s? Oh, and just for reference, so inflation is approximately the pound since 82 to 2002. Um, that was 20 years ago. Yeah. Cum, uh, cumulatively, years, cumulative price years. increase of just a fraction under 300%. So, so it's, it's a bargain, which means that today's prices are, are just a fraction under four times higher than the average price of in 1982. So, yeah. Does that mean that you could spend more buying back ocean now than <laughs> you spent building it? I don't know. What's the what's the cost of a? I mean, ocean was probably. I don't oh, think the Brazilians Lord. are going to let us have it. But no. the, the, the build... The Ocean build, was the steel of the century for the Brazilians. The build cost... So the build cost for Coventry when she was built, which admittedly was in back in the early 70s, 70s yeah. was £38 million. If we look at um, the... Sh if we look at the last... The batch threes, they're about £130 million, which... If you multiply that by 3.92, which was the multiplying factor that was given, so they're just about about half. They, theoretically, that's about half a billion in today's money, which is about forty percent the cost of a Type Forty Five. Uh, okay, so you might as well build the Type Forty Five. Damn, there goes my argument. But next well, week it might be cost. a different matter. So you know, it's it's a, next it's week a budget might be a price. Different... <laughs> yeah, but you got to get it up. So. Well, that's details. <laughs> you know what's of... actually worse is though the the, the the still the worst thing I find going on in the currently is not any of this stuff. It's the fact that people are adopting flat caps as uh, 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 for hipster reasons, and I just find that absurd. But leave that to one side. That's worse to me than anything else. Where right, did that come from? You got a bit uh, I I've logged into Twitter because I've got I, some I, information, I, I, I just, and that suddenly flashed. I, 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 I want, I want oh to inform you. Lord. I need to inform you that I've been wearing a flat cap for at least the past ten years. I know, and I wear a flat I'm cap bald. as well, but I don't agree with hipsters wearing a flat cap because, frankly, that just disturbs and, and me and it makes do me you ask them, Do you ask them to present their hipster card? To, to, to verify their identity. Drac, do you need this a hipster to present their hipster card to work out they're a hipster? Um, to be honest, I don't pay that much attention to people. <laughs> no. Same here. Um, <laughs> unless someone's wearing something exceptionally bright and gaudy to the point that it burns your eyes, I can genuinely walk past someone and then type five seconds later, you can say, what did you think of that person? I'd be like, there was a person. <laughs> I have... Uh, no, yes, I've always... I've always Felt I'd be useless in a uh, police lineup. Um, okay, you know, so this to is the identify anyone. This is the fun you have with teaching. First years come in first class, right? Then I teach history engineering to engineering students, and a young man. This is September. This is October in the UK. A young man walks in to my class with a uh, with a flat cap on, no shirt, thankfully trousers. And I'm sort of going, it's October. I don't even allow you to go shirtless in the summer. We're in a lab. Put your frigging clothes on and then come back here. But, which, but, but Which lab was it? It was the uh, concrete lab. And you should have let him stay shirtless and just had an accident. 
<laughs> the lime. No, because that's a health and safety risk. And also, I do not engage in Darwinism when I'm in charge. Just or just ask just ask him to shoulder carry a bag of lime across the lab. Honestly, I think it would have broken him. He didn't look right. like he could lift a peanut. Let, let, let's <laughs> let's get back to something naval related. That, 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 that's the <laughs> other thing I was sort of going. You know, if you're going to go shirtless, at least have something to yeah. show off, mate. All right. <laughs> so let's get back to Coventry and actually talk about something a little bit relevant mm -hmm. for change. Yeah. Um, tapes, equipment, missiles. Um, but 30 years ago, is there any difference really between scouring um, the, the Wasa as a archaeological site and the Coventry? And what about Moskva? I mean, not that Moskva was much more advanced than Coventry, but, you know, well, um, I mean, I think it comes down to this whole thing of like, it's probably the same i think it's the same kind of argument as what's the where's the line between archaeology and grave robbing mm. <laughs> um so when do people stop caring enough because you know so, sometimes you get you know, archaeologists will dig up um i don't know early victorian burials mm. and depending on the local conditions the local community etc cetera, etc cetera, Sometimes people get massively up in arms, even though those people have been dead for two hundred years. And sometimes two, nobody cares. I guess the point the point is though is that two hundred years mm. is potentially within the living memory of a grandparent or a great grandparent. Yeah, that is actually one of the and, weird. That is one of the weird things because um, uh, what was it the it's kind of semi-related to the, the the recent funeral of the Queen because I said on in last week's episode the slightly bizarre thing is the last time we had a state funeral for a monarch in the UK the, mm. the person being buried had fought at the Battle of Jutland but then it was also mentioned that you know people people who showed up to that funeral had no some of them had known the Duke of Wellington which actually legitimately takes you back yes. you know, 200 plus years and of course the Queen was there so you know someone of the queen's age as you said could be you know what two degrees of separation I'm, removed from yeah. from the the battle of trafalgar or the battle the battle of waterloo but it's kind of it's kind of where 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 do you draw that line because it varies some, some archaeological digs like in the state some archaeological digs they'll happily dig in you know american civil war era battlefields which are another 50 60 years advanced from there but in other places if you excavate something that's maybe 300 years old people have issues with it but when you get back or, to something as far as vasa most people are just like well it's, it's it, that's far it's, too it's, old it's, I mean, it's, it's very culturally based mm. yeah some I mean, they've got the bones yeah, of some, people from vasa yeah, on in a museum <laughs> some australian cultures because they have been in the same place in the same uh, yeah, and the same sort of communities for fifty thousand years are upset mm. naturally when a mining company company comes along and blows up their cave full of um, rock art, yeah, and, and paintings. Can't yeah, think just, why just, just, that would just seem just, to me absurd. To just as you would, just it. as you would be um, upset if you went and blew up a uh, the what's that Stone famous ca cave in um, in France? The, um, oh yeah, yeah, the one with all the uh, paintings. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, you know, I mean, this is the point. It's, but, but I guess technically, okay, it's a, there's, there's a, there's a war grave issue mm. for certain, but the military secrets one, um, you know, I don't know what sort of condition magnetic tape would be after 30 years. Um, I guess if you pull out a sea dart missile or something, you can reverse engineer it to a degree, but even that would have. Why do you want to reverse engineer a sea dart missile? Let's well, think, let's be honest. The seeker head, maybe you want to look at, but the whole missile, you wouldn't. Because okay. every, well, every I don't part know so much. Thing. I mean, the sea dart, the sea dart was um, a ramjet missile. Yeah. And let's face it, most most everyone else at that point, and even today, is using either rocket motors or dual pulse rocket motors. And the latest and greatest example of air-to-air missile technology is Meteor, which is a ramjet missile. And um, depending on who whose reports you believe, possibly the next generation AMRAM replacement in the States is going to be ramjet powered. So, I mean, okay, it's... 40-year-old technology, but if you are looking to it build works. your own ramjet-powered missile, if you can get an example of a working ramjet on a missile-sized body, that might be a leg up if you've got no other real technical experience. Well, so I could understand the Iranians then, or maybe the Iranians, pretty much, or maybe the, the North Koreans going it's proof after of, it, It's I'm proof of sure concept. It's proof of concept for miniaturization because I'm not aware of the Chinese having built any ramjet powered surface to air or air to air missiles. Um, I, I, I mean, the Russians have ramjet powered things, but again, I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure about that either. Whether they've got any surface to air or air to air missiles powered by ramjet. So, you know, again, it's it's older tech, but there is a certain amount of validity to just you know having, um having a miniature a miniaturized working ramjet on a missile sized body even if you can improve on it it gives it you know all that initial proof of concept work can be scrapped because you just go right well here is a here is an example how do we make it slightly smaller cdart is not exactly the world's smallest of missiles and how do we make it better you know you're cutting out a lot of the initial legwork what better materials we have, what better manufacturing processes yeah. we have, yeah. Um, and and so, to be honest, I mean, the, the Iranians strapped a bunch of conventional surface-to-air missiles on some of their aircraft towards the end of the Iran-Iraq war, so if you're really, really desperate, there's nothing to technically stop you just doing, here is a here is a dart knockoff that we stuck a better seeker head on and slung under an aircraft. So It would certainly be enough of a bang to make most other aircraft go, ah... Mm-hmm. So what about Moskva? Should we should we be trying to raise that, or at least strip the wreck? Oh, Wargrave, Wargrave, or uh, potential um, intelligence bonanza? Well, we know the the Americans didn't have too much issue about raising recent wrecks with people on board in secret. You know, with the whole Glomar Explorer incident. I think, and it, those that wasn't things the Wargrave, not... though, was it? Well, that, well, it wasn't no, a wargrave, but there were dead people on board. To be fair, those two things are not mutually exclusive. Just because it's wargrave doesn't mean it's intelli- mm. not intelligence. Bazaar- bazaar- no. bazaar- I think bazaar- it comes down to the, this. There's two possible ways of going about it. One way would be salvage in situ, where you have people going after key specific technologies. Um, I mean, to, again, to use another example, the British, as soon as they could get their hands on it, ripped a bunch of stuff off of Graf Spee, even though 
I mean, okay, fair enough. The bodies have been brought off of Grash Bay, but people had recently died on there. Um, so and you it was could... technically in a neutral person's harbor, but they used the yeah. Americans to go in and grab it. Some stuff. But you, you, so you, I think you could go in and very specifically look for key intelligence items without the intent of disturbing the ship as a whole. The alternative would be to take, which is possibly, I mean, it would certainly cause a heck of a storm from the Russians, um, but would be to take an approach somewhat similar to what they did with whatever K-1-2, whatever it was that the Glomar Explorer fished up, which would be to try at least try and salvage the entire ship for whatever reason, um, if you wanted to do that, but then to give formal burials at sea in place to any bodies that you recovered. Now, I mean, technically, you know, technically the Soviet Union kind of said okay-ish when they were told about that eventually. From a moral point of view, it is incredibly dubious because it's basically a third party coming in and just going, you know, what we've decided that we are going to change how this person's final resting place is because we want to, which wouldn't stand in pretty much any other circumstance. On the other hand, precedent has been set. And of course, the Russians would always object because they don't want anyone fishing, fishing secret, any potential secrets out of Moscow. Um Although overall, I I think I have a feeling that I think salvaging Moskva as a as a as in raising the entire ship to me it would feel more like just sticking a very expensive two fingers up at the Russians rather than anything else because there's nothing really to be gained from that. Yes, there's arguably something to be gained from salvaging some S three hundreds or some granites or. You know the, the CIWS or their medium range systems or their yes. radars, etc. But all of this stuff can be extracted from the wreck whilst leaving the bulk of the wreck in place. The 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 amount of effort and money that would be involved, you know, of sending some mini subs down to shave off some bits that are mostly external, compared to the amount of money that would be sending down enough of a salvage crew to take a ten eleven thousand ton cruiser up. Um, that would be, yeah, that you wouldn't get any much more out of it except for just annoying people. But is it even feasible these days to expect to recover, quote unquote, the Enigma machine? Because, uh, yeah, let's face it, in the theory, is it? in theory, there are procedures for destroying this. And I mean, you know, even in World War II, the 99 times out of 100, the Germans managed to either sabotage or the Enigma machines and the codes and sync them. It's just the few times they didn't. Mm. So on the one hand, part of me, the, the default part of me wants to go, well, anyone sane and sensible would have made sure any covert materials in, in encryption and stuff would have been destroyed long before they left the ship. On the other hand, given that Moscow was sent out there in the state she was in the first place, as any, if if there's anything we've learned from the current conflict, it would be don't assume that everybody is going to be acting sensible and sane. So it is entirely possible that whatever passes for encrypted communications equipment on Moscow is still down there, 100% intact, just slightly damp. Beyond that, though, um, these days, most of that technology is the software that you know controls the, the doohickeys and the widgets. And salvaging software 
from a wreck would surely be a completely different matter altogether because I really don't think those hard drives would be um, all that easily readable. Well, the trouble is the hard drives have to be made quite survival because in nice way, you've got to design them to be able to withstand the shock of weapons going off. You've got to be able to understand the vibration from the engines. You've got to you've got to probably make them waterproof because even if the thing's not sinking, there's always a problem of water and possibly getting involved in the humidity on the ship. So those actually are going to be designed to be quite survival. Yes, there should also be some sort of method of destroying them. But my thinking is that probably requires someone pressing buttons. And what's the person there to press the buttons? It also depends on what the um, on what the storage medium is. Mm. Because if it, it, I mean, given how old Moskva is, it could be magnetic tape, the same as it was on Coventry. Now, okay, magnetic tape exposed to heat, then cold, then salt water, etc etc that might well have be very rapidly degraded beyond use if it's magnetic hard drives they you can recover a surprising amount with military grade equipment <laughs> off of a magnetic hard drive even if it's been shorted out as if there was power to it while it was sunk and if it was solid state media which again you know given the prevalence of um Given the given the prevalence of off-the-shelf civilian kit, at least in Russia's air and land forces, it wouldn't necessarily be a huge shock if it turned out that all the encryption codes and everything were being kept on a USB stick or an SD card that could just be plugged in. Well, there are there are examples of digital cameras having been fished out, fished out of the ocean yeah. after several years, encrusted in barnacles and the like, and the and the pictures being recovered from them. Yeah. So, well, solid state media, as long as it doesn't incur like massive physical trauma or massive um, magnetic, you know, EM field fluctuations, it should be perfectly fine. You could chuck a, I mean, yeah, okay, USB stick would take a lot of drying, but a solid state drive like a, an SSD or just an SD card, you could chuck that in the ocean and fish it out a decade later and there'll be no particular reason once you've cleaned it why it shouldn't read. And I have, here in my hands, I have a 500 gigabyte solid state hard drive which I put in my previous PC when I built it five years ago. In a nicest way, this could probably have stored the entirety of the code for Moscow and all her sisters combined. <laughs> So, the thing is, this was very financially affordable for me six years ago when I was on a, well, I was on a contract lecturer's salary. Even if I am going to milk it for as much money as I can as a corrupt Russian official, you cannot tell me I will not afford, well, hang on, I can market this and say this is the latest tech and charge through the nose for it. Hey, you're onto an idea there. <laughs> yep. Because, again, you could make this... Let's put it this way. You could stick this inside a foam box and then say you have made... Uh, stick it inside a foam box, which also steel box, and then go, look, mm. I've made it so it's completely damage-proof and secure and everything, and it won't get damaged no matter what you do. 99, 99p clip case from the now-defunct Maplin Electronics. <laughs> yeah! Mm. And the thing is, that would have survived. 
because this is a Samsung Seagate, a solid state solid state drive, so it's they're blooming hard to destroy. I know so I'm I have tried that, to destroy so I'm one. Guessing if, if there was any value to be had from the Moscova, someone probably would have already been down there. I'm presuming um, a submarine has gone in, and very nice people have come out of the of a very specialist system and have gone swimming around Moscow already. And I, those people will probably you've be get, going you've to. You've got to get them through the Dardanelles, so that would have been. Yeah, noticed. I I personally wouldn't count on it so much because Moscow did go down pretty close to the Baltic Fleet base, and the Russians did get Komuna, that like hundred plus year old salvage and ship. They're still running. They did get that there fairly quickly. And we know the Black Sea Fleet has a bunch of its own submarines. And the Russians, you know, for all for all the fact that the Russians have become everybody's latest punching bag, um, their underwater capabilities are one of the few things they seem to have maintained to a certain degree. So while it's tempting, you know, it's and it's nice to think maybe for people in the West, I wouldn't necessarily count on anyone from the West having gotten down to Moscow just yet. Apart from anything, I suspect there probably would have been a kilo sitting there making sure that nobody could fairly quickly, let alone, you know, actually having to get the assets in theater. Whereas the United, whereas the United Kingdom needs to get itself a salvage vessel, uh, train the crew, train the uh, divers, and get down to Coventry to recover its sea darts. We just hire one. Hmm? From the Russians? <clears throat> no, probably one of the one of the ones the which are owned by British companies. No, there are several which are owned by British companies. <clears throat> they're, they're, otherwise, they're used for supporting oil rigs and putting all the stuff in for the oil rigs and all the gas rigs in North Sea. So probably it, it, it's it's whether it's salvageable, it's or deep sea, so, uh, deep sea diver support vessel, or whatever you want to call it, that's the same vessel, same skill set, same facilities you need. We just hire one from the North Sea. In fact, in the nicest way, the odds are we already did it years ago and we just haven't publicized it. Anyway, just so people know, we're talking about a article in Navy Lookout. Um, that's about the um. Efforts involved in protecting the secrets from the wreck of the Coventry um, mm. divers going down there and checking out the uh, the uh, the unwanted remnants aboard the vessel in case anyone decided to go and find them. So the next subject, I suppose, we might as well stick with the underwater theme since we started that with SSGNs and now sunken ships. But um, Britain is purchasing two. Count them one, two um, vessels to secure its under undersea cables after a certain Nord Stream pipeline was uh, suddenly exploded accidentally on purpose. Yeah, I wonder which vessels Ooh. we're buying. Yeah, um, yeah they, they uh, said we're buying vessels, and to be fair, it's like one, two, as yeah, one, two, that's probably about as high as the current lot in the cabinet can count. Um, Again, the... this is Ben Wallace who has announced this. So Ben Wallace has announced it. So it's probably going to actually happen. Yes, but he's because... got to explain it to the rest of his cabinet colleagues. And the rest of his cabinet colleagues, you know, they're a bit like orcs from 40K. It's one, two, <laughs> lots. And they haven't said lots. So it's two. And he's probably got, uh, I, I, he, well, he's got two options. He can either get the new build and get probably a, a David Attenborough. Um, Sort of style vessel. Hello, Tell Jamie's about, dad. 
Tell, tell us, uh, tell us about the the David or, Attenborough class. Oh uh, well, David Attenborough is well. It has Boaty McBoaty face, so it's got the most famous drone in the world of audit. And it was originally going to be called Boaty McBoat face because that was what the public voted for until they decided but, that was silly. Yeah, basically the British, uh, basically um, <clears throat> the Royals. Uh, uh, let's put it this way. It's built technically not a, for a non-government, well, no, for a quasi-autonomous government organisation um, so, so to support British science in the Arctic, etc. And, well, she's a lovely ship. But, and I say this in the nicest sense of the way, and she's a good ship, there was kind of a furrow because they said they, they put out the name selection to the British public and if you wanted any, if you needed any idea of where British referendums are going to go, this is the example. They gave all these illustrious names. They had a PR company quietly trying to push Sir David Attenborough, which was the name they wanted. And the British public, someone put in Boaty McBoaty face as a joke, <laughs> and it won with a stonking great big majority. And may, may I point out that David Attenborough wasn't the second or even the third choice. The second, the Boaty McBoatface got 33% of the vote. Poppy May got just over 10% of the vote. Henry Walsley got 4.2% of the vote. And he's a, a modern day Arctic explorer and Antarctic explorer. Mm. He retraced Shackleton's journey. Da the David Attenborough got 2.95% of the vote in a distant fourth. Um, only 0.1 of a percent above the uh, RRS. It's bloody cold here. <laughs> so, um, yes, the, the moral yeah. of this story. It, the moral of this story is: if you think that Britain's a democracy, forget it, and this proves it. Yeah, yeah they won't listen to whatever, when we come up with good decisions. So, what gets named Boaty McBoatface? The drone. The drone oh. it carries. Yeah. Which is it also makes it slightly, um, you know, it makes it slightly makes it, incorrect it, it, because, uh, you know, it boaty McBoatface is an underwater drone and therefore is not a boat. <laughs> yes, but is now the most famous underwater drone in the world? Hmm. Should have been called but but Subby McSubface, but then I suspect that would have led to far or too many jokes. Droney McDroneface. Hmm. Yeah. What, what was what was the number two option that you said? Uh, Poppy May. Poppy, Poppy May. Mai, maybe. I don't know how that MAI is. Maybe, the, maybe those can be the names of these two new underwater uh, security vessels. Mm. Well, this is the thing. So if we've, uh, it, the options are really there to buy either what we basically other vessels which look like our current um, Arctic patrol vessel. Oh, I'm trying to forget her name. Remember her name. It's not. In, she replaced Endurance. Drac. What's that? Help me. The the vessel which replaced endurance, protector. Yes. Um, either by basically See, lazy sisters, names. Bloody hell! Uh, sisters, uh, either by sisters of protector, or by uh, or get Camelard to build variations on Sir David Attenborough, which is where they did. This is an interesting thing. Camelard were the ones who built David Attenborough. In try, this is kind of British tradition. We want something built well, and it's got to work. Who's going to build that ship? 
Mmm, we're going to look around all the British yards. We're looking at all the... We're taking 10 minutes for everyone. Everyone, we're going to look at you all. We're going to look at you. Ah, camel lads. Camel lads going, we weren't even going to bid. You're building it. But but <laughs> we have other builders. You're going to build it. Okay. All right. So next question. How the hell would two of these vessels prevent a Nord Stream style attack? They wouldn't. No. So what's the point of buying it? It they makes fix it look after good for it, TV. And they would fix it after it's broken. <laughs> I mean but they're uh, not fix it vehicles, they are surveillance and security vessels. So no, they can watch it happen in real time. You know, they can say, you know, just like all those we, cameras don't around London. Underwater asset, otherwise, we're going to publish we'll watch you. Twitter. We'll watch you. <laughs> we're going to live stream your sabotage and you'll be downvoted. No, let, let's put it this way. They all gather more information about it. They'll <coughs> monitor it all. And the trouble is, we've had ships like this before in the past and we use them. And this is the problem is because you cannot physically secure it. You would need a lot more ships to actually physically yeah, secure it. Of course. It. Of course. And that's the thing. So you have two, you have a capability which could allow you to watch, so could allow you to sort of call in the interceptors to intercept and try and deal with it, yeah. or allows you to prepare it quickly because you can uh, chant the information. But the thing is, the last time we had that capability, they were in service for roughly 10 years before the government got rid of them because they weren't useful enough because they hadn't been used to actively deal with something. And you sit there and go, you buy a very sensible capability to have, but it's kind of like long-range maritime patrol so, aircraft. So basically it's, what you're doing hmm. is you're using a current event to justify purchasing that age-old ancient concept of a survey ship. Yes! So just like that... a through-deck cruiser, yeah. uh, these survey ships are now being called underwater cable security vessels. Yes! I mean, the the other thing you've got to bear in mind, though, is it like, sounds more military. <laughs> we, we've got a lot of different. We've got a lot of different um, underwater assets. Far more than two ships could ever secure at once. Also, underwater assets tend to be quite long. So you know, you even if you had both ships, even if we, even if for some whatever reason, you know, Britain decided we were going to, if we had these Our ships a year ago and we decided we were going to help secure like Nord Stream or whatever. You could have had those two ships at any two points along the Nord Stream pipeline, and that's still going to be like 98% of the pipeline is still unmonitored. <laughs> yes. it, it relies on a spectacular levels of luck or stupidly high levels of intel to actually put these things where they would need to be. The, the, the one upside, potentially, that I could see for this would be to use them as prototype drone carriers mm -hmm. because if you actually seriously wanted to protect your underwater assets but your budget's only going to stretch to two ships then yeah something like a david attenborough style vessel would be perfect because you put a helicopter pad on it and it has a helicopter a pad on massive a drone bay in the back designed to carry a lot of drones and has a moon pole exactly and then basically you turn up over your asset you want to be protected whether that be a pipeline or a internet cable or whatever and you just feed drones out and you have drones doing little back and forth patrols. And that way you probably actually can cover most of your asset most of the time. And if one of the drones stops working, well, there will be another one coming along fairly soon to figure out why. And that or might your ship you can like, come, come above it and recover it to recharge its batteries. Yeah. yeah. And that might give you some, and you know, if, if 
there is a hostile entity that's <clears throat> that's messing with it and they disable a drone you'd be like oh well the next drone shows the disabled drone and the hostile people and so we can maybe do something about that's it that's when you that's when you call that... in your SSN, ssgn yeah. No, that's when you go, hello, uh, HMS Audacious, you may go in. And then Audacious comes in and goes, hello, here, meet torpedoes. No, even well, better. But no, no, even Australia better, because you're those. using a big we, ship like Sir David, if you use a Sir David Attenborough-derived ship with a moon pool, you need to recover your drones, as you said. If one of them runs out of power, one of them runs into an unfortunate incident, which means you have to have a giant claw. <laughs> so when when you detect the hostile underwater divers or their mini sub or whatever you reposition your ship over it and then it's like one of those arcade games the claw comes down is going snap 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 picking them up and you know they either have to run away you have that, been reading about be the north four. korean submarine being trolled again haven't you drak well it, would it be an act of war, really? Because, you know, they're not there. You know, this potentially hostile asset isn't there. So you can't declare war on something that's not there. And also, if you weren't to really get into the rules lawyering of it, I'm fairly sure quite a number of acts of act of war legislations and definitions these days, um, you know, refer to either something like hostile action in intended to cause injury or death or actually straight up reference shooting and you're not doing either of those with a giant claw you're just trying to recover whatever the mis mysterious asset is so you know if if a theoretical cable protection ship comes in with a russian or chinese mini sub you know in a in a claw like a trophy fish <laughs> it comes into harbor you can measure it it's like oh no this one's not long well, enough chuck it back in the sea <laughs> well, I, think I have a feeling under this scenario those ships would also have to have a permanent detachment from the special boat service as well as the royal marines Aboard, we're just stealing to make sure. Uh, oh, yeah, and um... this opens up a whole new thing. If we're having to return people's artifacts from the British Museum, if we have a giant underwater claw, we can start looting the seabed to replace it. Yes. There's got to be plenty of sunken civilized. I mean, there's the whole Doggerland civilization that sank. There's loads of offshore civilizations that sank under the water due to you know, either coastal erosion didn't they recently discover lioness or something off of wales yeah some yeah there's all or sorts Cornwall. of things but there's plenty of underwater looting opportunities and they don't have any descendants <laughs> to complain hey we could go finally we could finally find atlantis yeah and loot it what yeah i thought they already found it yeah there we go oh, well we found 16 different atlantises <laughs> yeah <laughs> Okay. So According to Futurama, we found Atlanta as well. <laughs> the next problem, of course, mm. is the um, extra large underwater vehicles. Mm. Yes, and there seems to be another interesting thing going on because the Australians have problems with their program, the Americans are having problems with their program, and well, the least publicised program we, we, of the lot. Australia is not having is... a problem with its program because we haven't actually got a program yet. Well, yes, you've been talking the, the, about the, the autonomous vehicles, autonomous yeah. vehicles. No, yeah, not not the submarine, not 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 the actual SSNs. We're talking underwater autonomous vehicles. I think yeah, we only just. Be... I think it was only about a month ago that we decided to choose um, Andril to uh, produce uh, our first test bed extra large underwater vehicles. So, no, you can't blame us for the Orca. I can, but we'll leave that to one side. Well, uh, perhaps you can. I mean, maybe the reason why we, maybe we're the ones who stuffed up the orca, so that's why we're going for Andrew. I, I don't know. Possibly. But it's kind of interesting that the, the orca one is 
having running into issues. And I think it's again, it's to me, it's the F thirty five problem. It's turned into a Christmas tree where everyone's trying to hang everything on it. And it's sort of yeah, so it's, I, it's... I, I'm reminded of the X forty seven B program where the US Navy produced a brilliant UCAV strike aircraft and then went, you know what we really wanted to do? We wanted to do air to air refueling. Well, and sort of having to redesign everything from the scratch. And you sit there and go, what happened to you? Who hurt you, U.S. So, Navy, so, so when you were young? So, well, I'm sure, you? the, I'm sure the U.S. Navy was inspired by the likes of the Firebrand, the um, <coughs> Spearfish, the uh, insert um, 1940s program fleet air arm aircraft yeah. here. I mean, list. Part, part, part of the problem, I hey, think... Hey, they weren't that bad. Part of the problem, I think, comes from the fact that, uh, at least at the start, this XLUUV program seems to have... Uh, seems to have... Uh, it started off a little bit like the LCS, where they're like, here, we're going to give money to two separate contractors. And then somewhere down the line, they decided, actually, no, maybe we should just go with the one, but that that will have put in some delays in the first place. Um, to be honest, but you know, it, it, I think a, a good chunk of it is probably also um, the same thing that's been afflicting a lot of procurement programs more recently. People, you know, constantly driving for we want we want everything and we want it for no, no money, effectively. And then so, so they can boast to... that we're going to get X X vehicles for Y money, even though quietly everybody who's involved in the contract perfectly understands there's no possible way that the contractor can actually deliver that plus the contractor has profits to to think about so if they know that the navy is going to accept or the army or the air force or anyone country if they know that the armed forces have already accepted that the prices are going to increase and the time is going to be delayed then there's actually nothing that in the contractor's interest to prevent them turning around and going, actually, you know what, we're just going to even more inflate the price and even further extend the build time because then we get more money and our shareholders get more returns on investment and it's all being paid by the taxpayer. So why do we care about timelines and schedules and costs and billings? They're going to have to pay us anyway because when was the last time the armed forces here actually cancelled a contract? Oh, quite frequently. I suppose. Well, I'm doing in terms of the big ones, like the you know the the US, the F-35 went hilariously over budget. Did they cancel it? No. No. Nope. You know, even even in awful... programs where they've curtailed, like the LCS and the Zumwalts, um, they still well, pay full R and D costs. And like, let's be honest, like me and Drac are not and... not keen on the idea of the curtailing of the Zumwalts because actually keeping the Zumwalts going would have been quite sensible well, if the, you've the, just been sensible the thing about, about what you put the in thing them. About program curtailment as opposed to cancellation is that curtailment means you still pay the full price of the R&D and that's where the that's where the pe the companies make most of the money. Mm. You know, you make the, the profit margin on so, actually so building the things is much smaller than the profit margin you can charge for developing them in the first place. So the Orca the Orca is an 80 ton autonomous underwater vehicle. Mm. Contract was set in 19 sorry in 2019 to build 5 of them. Now, the catch there was that they were five prototypes, but they were to be operational prototypes. So they were to be delivered to the US Navy as active <coughs> um, combatants, basically, 
um, mm -hmm. whether in their role as uh, mine layers or whatever other role they had. Now, the delivery date was two years, which was you know, 2021. The last so, one was supposed to be delivered in a couple of months. And yeah, I, I, where can you go wrong? Well, I guess things can change. I guess where these things usually go wrong is changes to their specification as they get built. Let's face it, you only need to look at the Australian Navy, Australian Defence Force, for that kind of um, propensity to change everything as you as you as you're going along. Um, but you can't get something like an Orca right, an eighty million, uh, an eighty ton underwater vehicle, roughly, I think it's what two hundred million a piece. No, it's only about um, eighty million a piece. Um, then what hope is there of, of, of getting anything complete? Um, it, 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 at some point, you've got to realise that something's seriously broken. So the first test vehicle is now not expected to be delivered until later this month, next month, next month. But, you know, um, these things... if. These things we've been talked, we've, we've spoken plenty of times in the past about how autonomous vehicles um, are our last best hope. That this is the way that you can counteract a, a major economic power that can build capital ships at a much faster rate than yourself. Um, you know, we are now in the position of Japan facing the United States in 1941. The, the economic capacity of China is dramatically greater than that of the United States, Britain, Australia, the West, because they've built the infrastructure to actually I'm not produce sure these the things. I think not sure the economic capacity, because okay, I know people so get a fact of industrial capacity is quite industrial. the phrase. Of capacity. Okay, industrial, because let's face it, okay, in the 1930s, who had the greater economy? Great yeah. Britain or the United States? Both of those had, were far better than anyone else's. Yeah, at that time, who had the, and also had who had the greater industrial capacity. So well, one leads to the other. So you know, um, the, there was one country that managed to build thirteen Essex class carriers. Yeah, but they did have the advantage that their carrier their carrier program wasn't stalled at one point by a minister by a minister going, "It's that we don't need them," and <laughs> then it weren't, they weren't being bombed at the time as well. Okay. That so did, and the Royal Navy did churn out quite a lot of light fleet carriers, etc., yeah. okay. and okay. all these things. Fair enough. So but, but that, that aside, that aside, if we're having it's trouble more building the hundred and having trouble so building the equivalent, if you're relying on your flower class corvettes to build to, to win the war, and you can't build the flower class corvettes, yeah, so well, here is, we are relying this... on. A technological, um, strategic, and tactical edge based on you know, autonomous smart vehicles to counteract a navy that's spitting out a new air warfare cruiser, three of them a year or something. I think there's something like six or, three or five of the um, Chinese destroyers cruisers mm -hmm. on the production line at the moment. Um, you know, what, what, what? What hope is there? Where, where can we go? 
Well, I mean, it's um, the, it, it covers some of the stuff that, that I talked about in in last week's bilge pumps, and it it, it basically it comes down to what I called before tail wagging the dog. Um, I point out, you know, the um, the CNO of the U.S. Navy saying, well, we can only build this many destroyers because that's as much as the infrastructure and the industry will support. And it's like that's that's not how it works. You know, that's how it works if you are enthralled to the private industry that's building your ships. If, on the other hand, you're actually building for a national need, that's when you turn around and you say, we are building a bunch of shipyards and infrastructure or we're reopening a bunch of shipyards and infrastructure. You build the infrastructure to match the build rate you want if you accept that the current whatever your current um infrastructure build limit is just is the the be all and end all, then you have to be prepared sooner or later to surrender your position to someone who has more infrastructure than you or built more infrastructure than you. So that there are solutions. But what, um, why have infrastructure if you can't actually build the product well i mean th i think this is one otherwise of the reasons... otherwise you'll have you know um five slipways building mm. oh i don't know it's uh, the f-35 equivalent orca mm. and coming off those slipways are orcas that are going to be in oh well, i don't know what's the term initial operating capability <laughs> for 30 years um <laughs> you know I, I, Look, the, the concept sounds great. The concept sounds brilliant. A modular underwater vehicle where if you want it to go longer, you just simply pull it, cut it in half or break it in half because it's built modularly, built in a modular design and slap in an extra modular hull section, uh, battery hull section or two battery hull sections or three battery hull sections so that the, the basically it turns from something that looks like a, you know, a, a, a fat um drone to a long torpedo because basically you just keep on adding these hull sections as, as modular components fantastic idea um modular cargo bays fantastic idea um using proven technology from previously designed um underwater vehicles fantastic idea three years later it's, sorry, so after the two-year build plan, we're now being told that it's going to be three years late. And it, well, I think this I, is yeah. I think this is one of the possibly one of the reasons why the sensible navies have kind of gone, we have a class, we're just going to keep building that class and maybe make subtle adjustments to it as we go, because it it rules out companies pulling shenanigans like this. Because I, you know, the, I mean, how many Arleigh Burks is the US built, or how many Virginias are they building? The thing is, that the shipyard can only shipyards can only pull off these kind of initial operational shenanigans once when the class is coming into service. Once you've actually got them under production, it's much much harder for a shipyard to turn around and say, "Well, you know, it's going to cost you another half a billion dollars and and take another four years to yeah. to build this thing." Because they turn around and say, "Well, you built the last 40. At this but, rate, so what's the why? Again, why, they, why this one? So um, the, once again, let's let's drill down into the actual problems here. Um, the excuse given is a lack of batteries, suitable batteries, a lack of we qualified, a lack of qualified welders. 
a lack of suitable titanium, that these three components were major bottlenecks, bottlenecks in the construction process. Now, um, I think I now understand why Australia can't expect to have any um, extra capacity from uh, the US sub-building program to help the, get a few early submarines into the production run here. It's, it's, it's once again, it's, it's not even at the level of having the infrastructure, it's at the level of having the material, i.e. to titanium and batteries, and at the level of having the skills, qualified welders. Now, admittedly, what submarine welding is the most difficult job on the planet, just about. But is it even a problem of the design? Can I ask questions? <clears throat> what mm -hmm. type of batteries are they? Well, they'd be lipos. So they're going to be made of lithium. What is there currently a global shortage of? See, well, I'm because I'm... China produces, and it's a, and also where does titanium come from? Where do we get most of the titanium for the world supply? Yeah, titanium but to be honest, that like the, the, yeah, there's it... there may be a global a global overall shortage of batteries, but let's face it. You know, there, there's global shortage and there's actual shortage. If you were, if these companies were actually serious about getting enough batteries of the right type, okay, maybe you don't want to get Tesla ones because they probably catch fire. Um, but you know, there are plenty of people producing vast numbers of vehicles all using lithium-ion or similar technology batteries. You know, in the you know they're using hundreds of thousands of these things a year. Getting enough batteries for five prototype vehicles isn't actually that difficult. Yeah, I suspect but if, it, marine, but if there's a global supply shortage and you're the gray. officials at Boeing, you can go, well, you know, sorry, but we, you know, we're, we're yeah. short of some batteries. So, you know, keep paying us, keep paying our salaries, keep paying our developmental costs for another six months while we, you know, send one intern who's never heard of the word battery before on a walking expedition to, you know, the other side mm. of the country where he no, may I think we're now winding works. up. We're now winding our way back to the, reason why Australia decided to abandon the um, French submarine contract, mm. which was lithium-ion batteries unproven. Okay, so Japan uses them, but basically those lithium-ion batteries in a submarine have to be built completely differently to a civilian. Yeah. They have to be built in such a way that they are not going to be as susceptible to impact damage and the cascading collapse that a lithium-ion battery um, can suffer through impact damage um and then you're going and that's and that's before you even get to the whole making it marine grade and military grade <laughs> so and basically um, here is the but, thing but, the americans well, have got the cheapest american company possible to build these when what they should have probably done is gone, especially for the uh, for the experimental ones, is gone to the Japanese and gone. Can you give us? Uh, can you buy? Uh, can we buy some of you? But also, the, but also, we're talking for all those specifications. We're talking about manned in-service submarines. These are a bunch of unmanned prototypes. You don't need quite as much. You're not going to. You're not expecting a bunch of prototypes to be experiencing, you know, hostile fire, yeah. for instance. So I'll, rem I'll remind they... you. I'll remind you of my opening introduction to this section, which was mm. these five five prototypes are expected to be in active service. They are not just prototypes. They're supposed to go. They're supposed to be like the Firefly, mm. a fairy Firefly was, and the, and even the Fulmar, mm. uh, the fairy Fulmar. They did not have 
production prototypes. They had production. They had production line prototypes, which mm. were basically going straight into operation. But those five operational aircraft would also have to go through the prototype testing process before they get handed over to the squadron. But so, even even then, it, you know, if they're going to have to undergo, even if you're expecting these particular holes to go into active service eventually, you can at least stick some some lesser batteries in them for testing purposes. You know, all they've got to do is chuck the power out. You don't need the shock absorption damage potential, etc., for something that's undergoing prototype testing. And so you're just like, okay, well, we'll stick some lesser batteries in now. We'll get the tests done, get them in the water, get them tested, underway commissioned etc and then you know when we actually want to use them in active active duty service a year two years down the line whatever by that point we'll have the proper batteries lined up and just pull them in you know they're not exactly large pull them into the dockyard pop the bat old batteries out which we're going to have to do anyway because batteries don't last forever and put the new batteries in and off you sell there are ways around it if the company that's and, building them isn't just interested in making massive amounts of so, dosh and, and when and when it comes to um the qualified welders and to titanium hull i guess you could always get uh, tesla's um, robot to weld leftover parts from the decommissioned uh, non non fully operational f35s mm -hmm. is possible <laughs> um but i mean there, 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 I am... there is so, I, th I think it comes with all comes the, back to with what we said. the welding said, part, I am seeing this is actually something which is quite common because welding titanium is a very, very, a very, very skill intensive thing. Yeah, it also relies and, on people actually paying the. And the you have going to pay rate. for you have to pay the going rate, but also yes. there's the fact is there's there's been a growth in demand for those people over the last few years. There hasn't been a growth in training them. And the trouble is the growth in demand was mostly predicated on quite a lot of the older welders keeping going. And one of the things I've noticed is that these companies, because they hadn't planned for it, then COVID happened, and suddenly a lot of those older welders have retired. Yeah, but it also, it, also no comes training. it also it's comes down to... They're just... not preparing no. for this sort of need. No, but also it comes down to, even, even in terms of just numbers, there are ways of getting those people because again it's like yes titanium welders are rare but there are a number of different industries that use people who can weld titanium the question is mm -hmm. the people who are going to work who ha already have those qualifications or the people who are considering getting those qualifications and going into the industry are going to look around and go who is paying me the most yes and who is giving me the nicest conditions and the nicest benefits packet and again, if you are used to fleecing everybody left, right and centre for every cent that you possibly can, you're not going to be. And I mean, how many times have we heard from different shipyards and, and basically things involved in the military industrial complex? They don't pay their workers very well. There's a reason there's a fairly high turnover. And occasionally yeah. they'll identify, you know, there might be one person or a handful, like three or four people with very specific skills. They absolutely cannot afford to have them go. It's, and it's, even it's, then it's they don't those... necessarily pay them so, properly. So if they're all like, those oh, well, politicians, all those yeah. ex-politicians are very expensive to maintain. Well, exactly. Not to so mention you, all you, those ex-former defense chiefs. And the like. Yeah. But, okay. So let's, let, final point before we finish for the day, I think. Mm. Um, yes, because we are bashing why, why, why are these things? Why are these things being built with cutting-edge lithium-ion batteries and titanium? At what point is good enough the solution to the problem? 
And well, at what point and, and at what point is the best possible option the cause of the problem? Yeah, I mean, th- I think this is the this is the other problem, isn't it? Because it's it's that same cycle of growth that you've seen previously seen in ship sizes, and now we're seeing with this kind of thing where you know the the torpedo boat and the destroyer were supposed to be the cheap you know sub 1000 ton solutions to the problem and a century later the destroyer is a 10000 ton monster that's displaced the cruiser and the battleship as the main service warfare capital ship and then people brought the frigate up and the corvette up and the and now the underwater vehicles up and everything it just escalates people bring in a cheap good enough solution and then people start iterating on that until suddenly it's the bloated monster that it was supposed to replace and round the cycle goes again. So, um, but this and, this point we seem to have jumped from the cheap replacement to the bloated, um, you know, um, yeah, which bloated consi- bloated beyond the point of return vessel. Considering um, that actually um, having the, anything in between, yeah, considering that a lot of these thing, a lot of these, uh, the current generation of underwater unmanned vehicles haven't managed to solve the problem of being fished up in nets by accident um i mean well, nor of submarines not... to, for that point yeah, nor, nor yeah but well to, to be honest if you fish a submarine the submarine tends to take your you and your boat with it um rather than the other way around and you know these things okay they're a bit bigger than your previous generation wave gliders and so forth but if a if a decent sized trawler and it's not exactly like china is short of trawlers at this point happens to catch one um it, it it's it's done for basically. Okay. So, so it either needs the, uh... a self destruct function or it needs it needs net cutters. So, so, yeah, so, and... uh, so, so just a question to our two engineers on the team: mm. If you built this thing out of stainless steel, mm-hmm. if you used, it would have the acid. acoustic signature mm. and the magnetic anomaly a signature of a pig. Well, not necessarily. And that's you the can... history of engineering guy. Not you, the you can of you can demagnetize steel. Yeah, you could build it with internal degaussing coils to minimize its yeah. magnetic signature. Okay, but that's certain... going to use up. That's going to use up your electricity. But yeah, but you only have to activate them occasionally. I mean, it's not that they have degaussing arrays for subs that are built of steel. So okay, you're not you're not going to make it non-magnetic. So a mad, a mad detector will still pick it up if you fly straight over it. But you're going to substantially reduce that signature. The main thing the main thing building it out of steel would be that you're not compared to titanium would be that you're not going to necessarily have as great a diving depth capability there's a reason like the alpha class and so forth were built out of titanium for their what pressure percentage hold. gain is that you know, well this I is the thing if you use yeah. if you if you're building like a this this size underwater an 80, 80 vehicle, ton modular underwater vehicle yeah i don't see um, the point in making it all singing all dancing you know, hyper deep diving, etc. It's not carrying an offensive armament. Well, uh, some of it's the not particularly fast. So you know, even even if it can, I mean, maybe there's a margin to be had with underwater recon um, capabilities at very deep depths. But you know, a, a lot of the coastlines that you'd want to visit aren't just physically aren't that deep anyway. Um, but b, as many 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 mini subs have proven you can make a sub that goes quite deep, you know, very, very, like miles down out of steel. Titanium is mm. preferable, but you can make them out of steel. You just make them slightly chunkier. Mm-hmm. So is this Orca project turning into the underwater version of the F-35? Yes. 
Yeah, probably. Um, so, um, when, when are we um, going to learn this lesson and realise that sometimes good enough is good enough? <laughs> well, that's the, that's the interesting when, thing. When perfect I've been, stops I've been looking... being a, a, a money-making opportunity for former defence officials and, and business owners. So I think I think I can see now why you know Australia has chosen to go for the unusual proposal for a underwater autonomous vehicle because I was surprised when that was announced last month. I thought we would had already been on board the Orca project, but if it's being made out of titanium with um, custom handmade lithium-ion batteries that um, you know uh, and you know probably um, diamond um, optical fiber internal networks then <clears throat> sorry that probably doesn't exist not that, not that i'm aware of and if i've just broken any secret uh, it's purely because i i, I made an intuitive leap um mm -hmm. then i can understand why it's been been dumped and i can also understand why this thing has gone from it is going to be three years late when it's an 80 ton underwater autonomous vehicle well it's kind of interesting because i'm I, i'm looking at the orca program and their specifications and i'm looking at what the royal navy starting off with the royal navy's got the manta in service it, testing mode the manta is nine meters long it's got a two meter beam it weighs nine tons 305 meters operating depth endurance 48 hours submer uh, submerged and speed 12 knots submerged and their provision their planned xluv for eventual operation which they reckon they will get into service in about 10 years' time. Okay, so they're, they're talking 10 years' time. And they're working towards it. They've actually hit the baselines, but it's interesting enough that's the most conservative of all the programs. They're looking at 10 years' time for something being in service. 30 metres long, 2.5 metres beam, 70 tonnes in weight, 350 metres operating depth. That doesn't sound to me like you're making a titanium, does it, Drac? If you're making a game for 350 meters, you're doing that on steel. 3,000. Yeah, or, or you're trying to make them as hyper lightweight as possible. Well, it's going to be 70 tons. So, in the nicest way, it's more than some World War II SS SSKs. Mm. Um, 3,000 nautical miles or 400 hours submerged operating and 12 knot speed. So, again, that's quite conservative if you compare it to what Yorker, et cetera are supposedly looking for and i'm looking at the australian program again it's quite conservative and i'm wondering i know uncrewed systems are supposed to be the all singing all dancing next generation coming but the point is that there often actually is a generation between there the, uh, between them coming and them being and them actually coming into service if we talk about aircraft, people often look at World War II and go, wow, the aircraft, they were the bee's knees. They won the war. They were amazing for destroying battleships. And that's a, you sort of go, well, we all, of course, know the difference and know the reality. But also the thing is they then turn around and go, well, you know, why didn't people realize aircraft were going to be all dominating, all single dancing in the 1920s and 30s? And you go, did you look at the aircraft then? They were not all singing or dancing in the 1920s and 30s. They went through many generations of many, many flops. They had something called the Blackburn Blackburn before they reached the swordfish, let alone you mean the Avenger. It was a flop? What do you mean it was a flop? Please don't try and claim anything else. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> it was very good as the first ever AWACS. That's it's it's that's the thing I will accept it being. But that's the point. I think today we expect this these things to be all singing or dancing right now. We have no patience. And that's um, everyone from the politicians procuring them to the um, company trying to sell them. Yes, everyone has no patience, and this is the problem. So build the stainless steel version of the Orca first. Yeah. yeah build, build the build the lead acid battery version of the Orca first. Yeah. Yeah. Build build a simple proof of concept prototype. Get that working, and then you can iterate on that. You know, get the build a steel version with with your basic batteries. Get it working. Then pop. Then you know, build and build the the, the Mark II hull with prop with like your your lithium based batteries, and then build your third hull with the lithium batteries and the titanium hull. And that way, not only do you get an initial operational thing that you can get testing quickly, but it also means you can actually prove with you know with hard evidence what the performance differences are by as you as you bring in your your final spec. Of course, that might be embarrassing to some companies who may have completely oversold the performance differences of the hyper shiny, hyper specialized, extra, extra special, hyper expensive bits and gubbins they want to add on. But well, if you're being honest about things, you have nothing to worry about, do you? And I would add this is the thing I find interesting because if we're all sort of honest, the most mucked up dystopian future world you can probably think about is the 40k universe. Oh, I can get Warhammer, worse, but it would take some effort. Yeah. <laughs> the point is, even in the Primark program, etc., when the Emperor is creating those super what super generals for his base his future forces. Primarchs. Yeah. There are proofs of concept and programs. There's the Angel, there's the Adeptus Custodes, there's all sorts of things which he's done first before he gets to there. And you sit there and go, well, if in that mucked up universe people can understand the concept of you have to do proof of concept and tests and develop things, why is it we in our supposedly enlightened real world, where we have all these people saying they're talking real talk, real financing, real world, cannot do that. Because fiction has to make sense. Reality <laughs> doesn't. <laughs> you, just need, you, just, you just need a good distraction for reality. Yeah. And with that, oh. I think that's the end of today's session. Yeah. Thank you very much for listening. We might there be a bit, more, behind bit happy and positive when Sal comes on. Yeah, um, Sal Richard, I don't think so. Yeah, he makes us happier. Yeah, yeah he, he, he makes, makes us happier. Happy. The, topic, the, the topic doesn't, but a he typical, makes us happier. A, a typical gregarious American. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Take care, everyone. Right. Catch you, everyone. Bye. 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 Welcome to the Bilge Pumps. Bunch of naval geeks spout off. <laughs>